Maybe Baker just really needs to move into a house of his own instead of living in his stadium, like those commercials. No, at a certain point, you start to get concerned for a guy. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is January 5th, 2020. Happy New Year, everybody. I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. Happy New Year to you. And to you. Thank you. <laughs> and from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Neil. Hey, Look, Jeff. we're just going to be very, this is 2021. We're going to be very polite. This is the nicest we've ever been. We're not going to have any grievances about how someone was introduced or not introduced in t- on time, in my case. Um... <laughs> You're going to bring it up even when you were. That's amazing. I like it. No, I'm not. I'm not. This is, we're very polite. Happy <laughs> New Year, everyone. <laughs> Indeed. Well, and God we, bless us, everyone. Yeah. Um, how about we air our grievances about our uh, NFL survivor pool? We could start off with that. <laughs> or not. Or not. We can just move on. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Now we have our results. And I am thrilled because the Ravens thrashing of the Bengals delivered me a brilliant comeback. Tie. Yay. Isn't that satisfying? <laughs> um, not even a little. After 15 weeks of this pool, because we didn't start until week three, because we're a little slow, Neil and I ended up tied with 12 points apiece, while Jeff ended with 11. Making our week 17 picks before week 16 really worked to my advantage, since Neil had picked the Chiefs and they rested everyone and lost to the Chargers. That I should have known. And I wasn't really I, should have known. Wasn't I chirping all year about how you were waiting too long on the Chiefs and this situation was going to happen? I think I was. You were, in fact, chirping yeah, as you no, were picking. you were right, Jeff. Not one to talk, though. Last place. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if I had listened to the guy in last place, I could have been in first place. That's all. Although, you who do. else was I going to take? I don't know. It's whatever. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> the official stance. <laughs> That's how Neil feels about ending the season tied with me. <laughs> Ugh, just the worst. Hey, if I hadn't, if I hadn't picked in two different Vikings games, I would have easily won. On today's show, we'll talk about the college football national championship game. Alabama takes on Ohio State next Monday. And how the semifinal games did or did not change our opinion of the playoff committee's choices. We'll also chat about the NFL playoffs and the super wildcard weekend we have ahead of us. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. This year's college football national championship game is set. Number one, Alabama absolutely rolled a just happy to be nominated Notre Dame. And Justin Fields and the number three Buckeyes put on a revenge-fueled performance to beat second-ranked Clemson, ending the college career of Trevor Lawrence and sending him to the Jaguars, presumably. Now, Justin Fields will face Mac Jones in Alabama's considerable offensive weapons. On ESPN SportsCenter, Tim Tebow savored the matchup at quarterback. Mac Jones, like I said yesterday, has the highest QBR in the history of the metric, of the history of us keeping that. He has the highest QBR. And so I'm going to give a slight nod to Mac Jones for the consistency factor, plus the weapons are around him. I think they're a little bit more elite than the weapons around Justin Fields at Ohio State. But what a quarterback matchup. I mean, both of these guys 
playing with such focus, such a chip on their shoulder, such determination. I'm as excited about this national championship that I ha as I have been about any in the playoff. I'm so, so excited because both of them are playing at such an elite level and they're hot right now. Mm -hmm. And so you know, we're going to have something special on January 11th. So let me start by asking you guys this. Are you so, so excited for this national championship? I mean, not as excited as Tim Tebow, it sounds like. It's not, not possible, I guess. <laughs> Tim Tebow is just very enthusiastic about everything. He, you know, he likes to attack life um, <laughs> and enjoy it. Who can blame him, honestly? I mean, I guess it's exciting that it is not Alabama versus Clemson. Will there be next year, there'll be this nostalgia for Alabama Clemson? No, probably not. <laughs> yeah, it's like, can we get that? Can we get the Cavs versus the Warriors in the NBA Finals? Uh, like, I really want to live my life as though it's 2017, but actually kind of. A little bit at the moment, yeah. Well, all right. So, Jeff, did, did Justin Fields kind of alter the expectations for Ohio State with his performance against Clemson? Or, or do we expect Alabama to walk away with this game? I don't expect him to walk away. I mean, I as a Jet fan, I was like scouting that game for Fields, and I was in very impressed. I mean, he he looked incredible. Some of the throws he was making and the fact that whatever happened to him, I mean, he was clearly hurt, very injured um, and probably shouldn't have been playing, but he was playing. Um, and I like how Ryan Day was like, yeah, he's tough. He's going to play. And I'm like, so does he not have a choice in the matter? <laughs> but, um, you know, he was missing his top receiver in that Big Ten championship game. So I think we saw, you know, what he's capable of with a full arsenal of weapons, even though uh, they were down, you know, one of their top running backs as well, um, Master Teague. But that being said, the throws, I mean, what were they? One of them sailed 60 yards in the air. It was incredibly impressive. Um, it, it was a great performance. And precise, too. That yeah. That's what, what got me, like how the precision that he threw those long balls. I was just like, oh, oh, hello. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wouldn't count him out by any means. Um, that being said, he's going into a buzzsaw because I think this, even by Alabama team standards, this is one of the better ones they have. I, it might not be the best defense they've had. They've certainly had yeah. better defenses. But in terms of offense, it's right up there with the best offenses you know they've had in the Saban era. And I do like the how the seesawing uh, assessments of fields are just so indicative of the small sample that this season has offered, where it's sort of like after the, the Big Ten title game, it was like, is Justin Fields even the second best quarterback in this draft behind Trevor Lawrence? And then now it's seesawed completely the other way. And now it's like, hey, is is he maybe better than Trevor Lawrence? I don't <laughs> think that, 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 you know, that's a little too far. But uh, I do think it's just funny where it's like it, it really is a microcosm of how our assessments of like everything have been in, in this college football season where it's like one game. Uh, on the one hand, it's only one game, but then on the other hand, it's one seventh of Ohio State's entire season. So it, it gets a little bit extra weight, especially considering it came against Clemson. Yeah, I yeah, we don't we didn't know. You know, I've been saying we don't know enough about the Big Ten and 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 how bad it is. But there are also things we don't know enough about the Big Ten and the teams that are good, too. Like we don't really know that much about any of these teams when they haven't played that much time. You know, and so I, I saw many tweets on Saturday, <laughs> which is my first problem, um, about Ohio State showing that it deserved to be in the playoff, which, look, my position wasn't that the Buckeyes couldn't win in the playoff. It's that they didn't 
play the necessary games to get into the playoffs. And the committee decided to just not care about, you know, the regular season. Also, I will hold firm to my belief that the Big Ten is wildly overrated this year, regardless of how Ohio State ends up. And that conference overrating conference overrating contributes to everything being out of whack. The bottom teams in that conference are so bad. Whatever. Anyway, Jeff, given your position (laughs) as as the given your position as the ardent Buckeye defender on this podcast. What does their flogging of Clemson mean for the whole process? Does it mean anything? This is such a tricky question because it's a broken process, as I said. And we have this weird variable of the COVID year where all these games are being canceled. I I just all I was saying when I was defending Ohio State is that they shouldn't be punished because their conference was a little bit their conference was ready to cancel the season let's remember let's go back a few months like they were out in front of it along with the max saying we're not playing football this year it's not safe and then the sort of peer pressure got to them we're like oh uh, everyone's playing okay i guess we're playing too we're starting later and we're having a short schedule and then a bunch of games are going to get canceled along the way It was kind of a messed up process to begin with because there's no central body that has any control over these conferences. And I I don't think the players on that team should be, you know, downgraded because they only played six games going into that game. And and I I think they were making their decision to let them in based on the talent and the team sort of going into the season, the team on paper. And I think, Sarah, you had issue with that is that it should it should be a clean slate. But I saying it's not necessarily fair to a team that never even has a chance to prove themselves to say uh, they're not good enough because they didn't play enough games. They didn't they didn't they didn't go out there and uh, risk risk their lives uh, against deadly virus as much as some other teams that were more liberal about uh, when we can start playing and when we can start practicing. I mean, I think honestly, I think I hold that roller coaster of decisions against them. And against Ohio State because they were the ringleader of wanting to play. Because they That's true. I mean they they Well so was Nebraska. Come on. That was a co ringleader. I hold lots of things against Nebraska. (laughs) But they were they were the two ringleaders. But if they were the ringleader, I mean they were the that means that they would have preferred to have played a larger sample of games. So it's sort of like we're holding against them that they played not enough games, but if they had had their way, they would have played a full schedule. It's the other teams that were standing in the way of them playing more games if that makes and sense. And themselves they but they but okay y- yes you're right in the term in terms of the general schedule but the reason they had games canceled was because of covid outbreaks including on their own team. So they they wanted to play so badly in the middle of a pandemic and then they didn't keep themselves healthy and keep their students their students their young people healthy the whole season and that and I do hold that against them and I hold the whole thing against them I'm mad about I'm mad about all of this well yeah and it does make sense like you know the fact that I think all of these special exceptions were made like maybe the Big Ten chose to play at all in part because they knew that Ohio State had a potentially really special team that could potentially win the national championship and then they broke the rules for them about qualifying for the conference championship game because they knew that this team had the potential at least to do what they did against Clemson and then they did that against Clemson so it is sort of like a question of you know on the one hand you have to admire the talent that they have to be able to do this and that that was the driving force behind 
all of the decisions that were made and the decision to put them in the playoff uh, because, like we said, it wasn't necessarily as much based on resume. It was based on talent. On the other hand, you know, it's it does run counter to some of the other um, schools that played more games and had resumes and this, that, and the other. And it all comes down to this sort of inconsistent logic of college football. And, and, and honestly, this is the only sport where this happens. I mean, you could argue it happens in college basketball with the decision making and, and who makes these tournaments. But at the same time, they allow so many teams in that it's never it, it's never really that important to a team's like championship prospects whether or not they're a bubble team or a you know nit team so this is the only time it happens but if you go to an and and i know we've been banging the drum on the eight game playoff as most people are for a long time at least you'll give these teams an end point where if we win this conference and we're in a power five conference um sorry group of five we're not quite there yet um <laughs> we will make the play it's kind of like washington football team if we win this division even if we're terrible we're going to the playoffs we know that it's very clear um we we don't have to you know wait till a bunch of people get in a room and, and sit around a conference table and, and make a decision um, or sit in a Zoom and make a decision in this case. And that's really the way it should be. It should be in the Pac-12 and it should be in the Big 12 too, which are these two conferences that we see year after year cannibalizing each other. Um, you know, Washington is great and then they lose to USC. Oregon is great and then they lose to Washington. I can't, I, I like, I keep going back to this. This, you know, obviously Ohio State and Alabama are recruiting powerhouses and and like that reputation of course helps them recruit more kids who are five stars and and helps them keep winning on the field but that recruiting also factors heavily into the ratings of those teams which then of course has to factor into the committee's selection this season it i mean the the potential of a team's player it seems to me that that was given more weight than what actually happened on the field by by these rating systems. I mean, I like I, I cannot let go of the fact that this Wisconsin team that I, I really like, they are they're ranked eighth right now in ESPN's football power index ahead of nine and one Texas A&M <laughs> after a four and three season like that. I, I cannot get over that. And I and that contributes to my opinion about the Big Ten. Neil, am I wrong? about all of this does a recruiting does a team's recruiting strength matter maybe more than anything else at this point well you know there's been a little bit of research into this so i found a a paper by jeffrey mankin julio rivas and jeffrey j jewel uh in 2019 called the effectiveness of college football recruiting ratings in predicting team success uh, that people can look up and they found they basically looked at the 24 7 sports class ratings and uh, tried to use them to predict the Sagarin the Jeff Sagarin power ratings for each team and they found that recruiting rankings explain about 36 percent of the variation in Sagarin ratings just kind of by themselves so I don't know you tell me does that sound high or low because that seems a little bit low actually I was a little surprised to see that um, number I would have expected it to be higher and of course this is like longitudinal it's across every team and there could be effects where you know it's much higher for the top teams because it does seem like it is constantly the top teams who are uh, you know at the top of the recruiting list but I think that that's also interesting when it comes to 
somebody like Steve Sarkeesian leaving Alabama as coordinator and going to Texas because there was an, a stat that looked at who had the most ESPN top 300 recruits over the past, I think, like four or five years or something like that, uh, and where the those teams ranked in winning percentage. And so you had like Alabama had the most. They had 76, and they were first in winning percentage. Not surprising. Georgia was second, seventh in winning percentage. Ohio State third, second in winning percentage. LSU fourth, they were 10th in winning percentage. And then you had Clemson, who was sixth, and they were third in winning percentage. But the big outlier there is Texas at number five. They were only 33rd in winning percentage, despite having the fifth best recruiting class. So it's not perfect, but it does line up reasonably well for those top teams when we're looking at how it translates to winning on the field. And you could say Texas, maybe that's the reason why they fired Tom Herman and they're bringing in Steve Sarkeesian, is hoping to convert recruiting into on-field success. But it does seem like all of these other powerhouse programs have done a really good job of creating these pipelines that self-sustain and you win more and then you recruit better and then you win with those recruits and it's just you know very difficult for teams outside of that group to kind of break through the top of that list i mean it's totally real look look at that these teams are unbelievably deep you you go back to that what was it 2017 national championship where nick saban has the luxury to decide that future nfl quarterback jalen hurts is in um isn't getting it done so he can bring in true freshman future NFL quarterback to a Tagovailoa. viola didn't pronounce his name right there but <laughs> it's just a luxury they have I mean they lose Jalen Waddle widely considered the best wide receiver in the country in the first week and now they have a wide receiver who's probably or may win the Heisman trophy it, the depth is unreal and and the same thing unfolds at some of these other programs like like Florida or like Georgia and like Ohio State and Oklahoma, they they just have incredibly deep and Clemson certainly also incredibly deep rosters with so much talent where their B teams are superior to the majority or the vast majority of the A teams of the rest of the, the, the country. Well, how about the last Ohio State champion where JT Barrett goes down with an injury and Cardale Jones, who I'm not sure has been heard from since, uh, steps in, plays great. They win the national championship and then he gets replaced, you know, the next year. And they also have Braxton Miller a couple of years later. You know, it's just like they had this unending um procession of quarterbacks and I think that's true of all like these second and third stringers on these top programs can can kind of come in in case of injury and just they'll be fine they'll be totally fine and they can win a national championship uh that way I do wonder if they if those players will stop going to those teams though if they think that they'll like be discarded <laughs> if well, that's supposed hurt. to be yeah that's sort of supposed to be the theory behind it and, and people were thinking well that's why we see so many quarterback transfers now is that you have the top teams sort of hoarding these guys out of high school and then whoever doesn't win the QB competition transfers somewhere else and you saw that with Jalen Hurts you know he went to Oklahoma and was amazing uh and so I I guess that's like the the fail safe in the system to kind of equalize things but it's one of these like invisible hand of the market type uh uh things not like a an enforced you know way of creating parity there's no way to create parity with this the one interesting idea that i did see was by a guy uh at usa today um let's see uh tim walters of usa today he suggested 
that there should be a cap on the number of four and five star recruits that any team can sign in a given class. Uh, and, and that would basically force the, you know, once Notre Dame and once Clemson and Ohio State and Alabama run out of their their quota for four and five star recruits, then whoever's left over has to go somewhere else. And I don't know how fair that is to the kids, you know, wanting to go wherever they want to go. Uh, and also it would create a lot of chaos, I think, with transfers where you'd have teams skirting this, you know, oh, I didn't sign you out of high school, but then come on and transfer to me, you know, when the moratorium is lifted. But at least it was kind of an interesting idea about how do you put in a salary cap type system uh, to control talent accumulation in a sport that has a pretty big parity problem. I don't know if I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I uh, yeah, I think that would be. That sounds like football recruiting socialism. Um But I, I think you could. It used to be harder to transfer. You used to have to sit down a full year, and it was tough. And, and now I think these guys will go to these elite programs, realize, oh, I'm pretty low on the depth chart. I'm going to go somewhere else where I'm guaranteed to start. Or where you used to be able to make that part of the recruiting process, being like, hey, you want to play, you come here. Hey, I mean, Iowa State's quarterback, Brock Purdy, he was recruited to Alabama. And he, I think, saw the, the, the like, line. Of yeah, he's like, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to play there. Um, and, you know, and is a, is a starter on a top 10 team. So, hey. The system works. <laughs> yeah, the system and it's probably going to get drafted. He's going to get drafted, right? Uh, well, not not next year because he's coming back. Um, oh. But, yeah, eventually. I mean, eventually. Yeah, so. yeah. But so Texas, they're this like interesting wrinkle where the the recruiting hasn't translated into success necessarily although i see that they are in in espn's fpi they are ranked sixth right now which is again like amazing but because they haven't made that leap into that success they they're going with steve sarkeesian who also hasn't necessarily (laughs) had that success but that chasing what alabama has i i think is what these teams will just you know, continue to do because it's it's working right now. Jeff, what do you what do you think about that hire? Will that will that cause any trouble for Nick Saban? Either probably not Monday, but maybe down the line. This right? is uh, old hat for uh, Nick Saban. If you look back, the amount of times he's lost a coordinator before its final game, I, I believe it's five times. So I think they'll be fine. I mean, he's there. He's committed to this this game, and I don't think it's going to affect Alabama. Uh, whatsoever. I did. I did see that Texas and Alabama have a home and home series scheduled for 2022 and 2023. Which so that that'll be fun. Theoretically, it'll be between those guys. <sighs> yeah, but I mean, you know, you look at Sarkeesian, and you're right. As a head coach, you know, it wasn't like he wasn't working with a lot of talent at USC, and he didn't even last a couple years there. Uh, and then. With Washington, you saw Chris Peterson come in right after uh, Sarkeesian left and take them to a whole other level. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, if you already have the recruits, I guess maybe you have to identify was it a recruiting problem at his previous uh, stops or was it a coaching problem at his previous stops? And, 
you know, where do those lines blur in college football right now? Because it is so much. It's 36 percent about recruiting. Uh, so, um, you know, yeah, it's it's kind of a question of getting the talent versus doing something with the talent once you had there. But you could look at Sarkeesian and say, like, yeah, maybe he didn't actually even maximize the talent. And if that's the problem for Texas, it seems to be maximizing the talent, not getting the talent. We talked about their the number of top 300 recruits that they have over the years. And, and by the way, I um. I- as a Michigan fan who hired a uh, former offense coordinator, Josh Gaddis to be our offensive coordinator. And, you know, when, when we made that hire, I was like, Oh, well then we're well, offense is going to be awesome. We had Alabama we got Alabama's offensive coordinator. It doesn't always work out. <laughs> it doesn't always work out. All right. Well, it'll take a while to see how that hire works out, but we will know by next week, how the college football championship plays out. Again, Ohio State and Alabama face off on Monday, and we'll talk about that next Tuesday. All right, let's take a break, and we'll be back in a moment to talk about the NFL playoffs. We have made it through week 17, and the NFL proved it can play a full season during a pandemic, give or take a few postponements and games played without entire position groups. Eh. The playoffs are set, beginning with an expanded six-game wildcard round this weekend. The Kansas City Chiefs and Green Bay Packers, as top seeds in their conferences, get a bye, of course, but there are still plenty of familiar faces in the wildcard round. The Saints will see if they can shake off their recent bad luck in the playoffs, and Lamar Jackson will see if he can shake off his personal bad luck. The Washington football team, maybe thanks in part to an assist from Eagles head coach Doug Peterson, will play a wildcard game after four seasons out of the playoffs. Of course, maybe the team that's happiest is the Cleveland Browns, who have not seen the postseason since 2003. They play the Pittsburgh Steelers, whom they beat in Week 17 to clinch the sixth spot in the AFC. Or it might technically be more accurate to say they beat the Steelers' backups last week, as several key players sat, and they'll actually play Pittsburgh on Sunday. Another wrinkle for the Browns, on Tuesday morning it was announced that coach Kevin Stefanski tested positive for COVID-19 and will be unavailable for the wildcard game, and the Browns' practice facility has been closed yet again. We're obviously not sure how that will affect the team going forward, but Regardless of how this specific game goes, on the Ringer NFL show, Kevin Clark posited that the Browns have already won. To me, I'm intrigued to see next week because I think the Steelers win this game, but I think that this Browns team has gotten significantly better since then. I feel like Kevin Stefanski, who, by the way, was able to do all of this stuff with no training camp, with no or a shortened training camp, no OTAs, no offseason, didn't even meet his players until August. The fact that he's able to get this team to improve this much in a short period of time is a testament to everybody in Cleveland. I, I love what they've done. I don't think they have they they have what it takes to win next week. Uh, but I don't think that we should just sit here for the first time. No, it's been 18 years since we've sat here on a week 17 Sunday and saying the Browns are going to the playoffs. I don't want this season to feel like a failure for anybody. Uh, this is success for Kevin Stefanski, Baker Mayfield, Andrew Barry, who I spoke to in August, and he said, our job is to make the quarterback's life easier. Mission accomplished. Okay. So I'm. Um, this is a victory for the Browns. They should be extremely happy with, with, with how far they've come. Jeff, should we look at Cleveland as a team that's already turned in a success story this year? Or do the Browns need to actually win a playoff game first? In most cases, I would probably say uh, no. That's not much of a success to make a playoff on the year they expanded the playoffs. Um, <laughs> sort of inexplicably, 
uh, why are we expanding the playoffs? Don't really <laughs> remember that. Um, that was pre-COVID too. Yeah. Right. That's right. Um, no, but I think in this case, it, it's a it's an accomplishment. They should be happy. I mean, considering all that team has gone through since they rebooted, which is just ugliness and firing coaches left and right and changing quarterbacks and drafting new quarterbacks and, uh, you know, all that, this team needed this. And I think it's a step in the right direction. Obviously, I think, you know, as Kevin says, Kevin Stefanski's done it you know, incredible job there. And even though they didn't beat the Jets, which is inexplicable, good for them. This is a step in the right direction for sure. I don't know. I think the thing that's kind of missing is I'm still not sold on whether Baker is the long-term answer. I think, you know, when you have a good coach and a, a good system and you're playing within your talent, often the, you know, the team will win. And and we certainly saw this with Jared Goff and, and McVay. And then they'll reward that quarterback with a big contract and, and, commit to him and maybe the quarterback wasn't you know as 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 important as the quarterback is I, in especially with this team and how dependent they are on the run I don't know if he's going to be the long-term like franchise quarterback that leads them to multiple playoffs and multiple deep runs um that that is to be determined that being said you know Baker's a hard player to to get a read on, you know, it, sometimes he looks incredible and, and it does look like a kind of quarterback that can lead a team for a long time. Other times, you know, particularly when there's a defender in his face, he looks borderline inept. So um, we'll see long term how they do, but they've clearly got something going there. Neil, what is the next step for Cleveland? What, what should they is there a certain thing they should be looking to do with their offseason? Well, I mean, I, I, I love worry the way we about... talk like they've already lost. Yeah. <laughs> well, they you could know. win this game. I mean, they could be. Yeah, they definitely could win this pretty, game. You know, sure. there, there's a there's certainly a lot of ways that they can win that game. I mean, I worry about them a little bit as a team that is primed to maybe take a step backwards after the smoke has settled on this season and you kind of look forward because, yes, they, they won 11 games. But at the same time, they were outscored by 11 points this year, despite the 11 and five record. Uh, and, the, you know, you would expect a team that got outscored by 11 points to have a, you know, 500 record at best. Uh, so they could be a team that sort of is a candidate to regress going forward. I think about the 2007 Browns. It's a little bit of a different story, but that team went from uh, four and 12 to 10 and six, uh, and they outscored opponents by 20 points. So they actually were uh, 31 points better in terms of point differential in 2007 than this year's Browns were. And the very next year, they collapsed back to four and 12. And it was just part of this like procession of terrible Cleveland teams. Now, you know, Baker Mayfield is probably better uh, and has more potential than Derek Anderson uh, at quarterback. Um, Certainly. But, uh, you know, uh, there, there. I think we've seen uh, from Baker a lot of highs, a lot of lows. Maybe it averages out to be kind of a average middle-of-the-road type of quarterback, which, again, maybe that's better than Derek Anderson, but, you know, not like leaps and bounds better. Uh, and their defense is bad. You know, they ranked 26 this year in um, defensive expected points added per game, uh, 26th against the pass specifically, and 24th in uh, Pro Football References simple rating system, which adjusts the number of points they allow per game for the strength of opposing offenses. So by whatever metric you want to kind of look at it, they need to upgrade their defense if they want to make uh, a splash going forward. And they also need, yeah, 
Mayfield to kind of continue his progression. And he was a lot better this year than he was last year. That's objectively true and probably one of the most improved quarterbacks uh, outside of, you know, like Josh Allen and guys like that, uh, just because he went from being pretty bad at times last year to being okay. You know, and I actually do think they have a legitimate shot to beat Pittsburgh, even though they got completely trucked by them at Pittsburgh earlier in the year in, in their worst loss, clearly. I do. I think I wonder, too, you know, and that was sort of a different um, Pittsburgh team, too. You know, that was a much more balanced Pittsburgh team than the team now that still seems to be kind of reeling um, aside from their comeback against Indianapolis. The the. Browns are interesting, too, given the weirdness of this COVID season, having to play a game without any wide receivers, yep. which, yeah, like, totally. gotta imagine that hurt Baker a little bit. Um, and, and also, that hurt me in Survivor. I probably wouldn't have taken the Jets if I had it known did. that, you know? Yeah. That's, that's what's really important. No, yeah. that is what's important. So it's a little hard to, but yeah, the uh, the defense seems like it has to be a focus for them in the offseason um, to, to get this team a little bit more to fit that profile of what an 11 win team should be. I am excited for this matchup though. I think it'll be good to, to see the, both the Steelers and the Browns. I think this will give us a, tr- a pretty good answer to which team is better. Um, I don't know. Although the wild card matchups all, there are a lot of really fun matchups this weekend. I mean, you know, the, it's interesting how it turned out that the Rams and Seahawks are playing each other. I mean, that NFC West has been so strange this year. The Ravens, who look also on fire now, have to play the Titans, which has sort of been Kryptonite. A, a problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, the like one of the games that's not interesting as much as the Bucks and, and Washington after Washington made it in after a uh, an interesting game on on Sunday night a questionably coached game <laughs> I just I also love that that game was on national television like NBC must just have been like you've got to be kidding me but that's part of the hullabaloo around that game was that you know it was optioned into the late game and and if that um if that hadn't I, happened, I, I yeah. think it might have flown a little bit more under the radar, but everyone was I, I watching. Right. And it was the most important game. Like when we broke it down and looked at its influence on like the ripple effect of its influence on every team's playoff odds, it actually was the most important game just because it determined the fate of all of these, you know, bad NFC East teams, but still teams. Yeah. you. I mean, it was the right call except for that like oh yeah this is the nfc east maybe we shouldn't do that it was like the right call in every way except for that like just that little extra something so you know we've we've talked a lot about tanking over the course of of this season and in previous seasons and how it becomes hard to distinguish between a bad team playing badly and a bad team tanking so to steal a question from our friends at the politics podcast was the was the Eagles benching of Jalen Hurts in favor of Nate Sudfeld a good use of tanking, a bad use of tanking, or not actually tanking at all? <laughs> I mean, I guess it was a good use of tanking in the sense that Philly now will have the number six pick in the draft uh, as a result of it. So if that's like all you care about, then and maybe that it should be all you care about in the um, last quarter of a meaningless game that you have no chance you know there's no stakes for you whatsoever lots of stakes for the new york giants but they're your bitter rivals yeah who cares we're also the football team so it's a little like who are you helping here i I think it was a a, granted okay so six to nine is 
I guess significant. Yeah, it's probably significant in terms of draft um, order. I, optically, it was a disaster. You know, it, it it looked bad. It was a you know you had the announcers Collinsworth and them uh, Michaels just basically openly mocking Sudfeld, who um and the and the Eagles With for. Cause. for yeah, it probably for, wasn't great for Sudfeld's career. Let's just yeah, <laughs> and I feel bad for Sudfeld. I mean, that, come yeah. on, that's not fair. But also, here's why I think it was a bad decision because they don't. I don't think they have any clue uh, what they're going to do at quarterback with Hurts and 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 Wentz. And and here's a chance to see what Hurts can do. Well, can he lead this team back and win this game? It was within one exactly. score. I love won. Neil nodding so emphatically <laughs> during I this. I so, but yeah, I'm uh, totally 100% on the same page with you, Jeff, on this. But you don't, you don't have a lot of film on this guy in, in real, um, real football situations against an opponent that is doing everything to win to you know good defense for by the, the way and a great defense um and you know he wasn't playing great but he also was playing okay i mean he ran for two touchdowns he was moving the ball um against a tough defense it would have been interesting to see what he could do and i think maybe he let's say he leads uh philly back to win that game and maybe that makes that decision easier because now i have no idea what they're gonna do well i mean with person wins you know actively trying to get off the team I don't think he's going to start next year I I I do I think there's some you know Chase Young was if if Jalen Hurts gets injured in that game then we have a completely different conversation about why Doug Peterson left him in you know I I just feel like the stakes for for Philly were nothing yeah, but also I I don't have any sympathy for the Giants. I mean, boo hoo. No, not Win at all. more than six yeah. games. How about that? Yeah, you're a um, bad team. You should not be. Yeah, the no, they can, but you know, I, I have family in Washington, and and even Washington fans are like, like, great, we made the playoffs. We have a worse draft <laughs> yeah. pick. Great. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, they're not even like that happy about it. So, <laughs> all right. Well, so. Our regular season survivor pool is done, but we're not quite ready to let go of it. So we're going to do a survivor pool for the playoffs, too, to keep keep some skin in the game for us. <laughs> some truly important um, high stakes skin in the game. So, all right, here's what we're going to do. Everyone can choose any team again. And we'll see if we can make this so it doesn't end in a tie. This time, a team a win will be worth two points instead of one. If you have already picked all the teams remaining in the playoffs, you can still select a team, but that win will only be worth one point. And after the conference finals, whoever is in third place will be eliminated before the Super Bowl. If all three of us are tied, I'm not sure what we do then. We'll figure that out as we go. These rules are fluid, and that's what makes it fun. So our our wonderful producer has randomly selected a pick order, and that order for this week is first me, yay, then Jeff, and then Neil. So I'm going to take, I'm going to pick against football team because, of course, because football team shouldn't be there. So I'm going to take Tampa Bay. All right, Jeff, who who will you take? I, um... I don't want to take the Bills because I feel like I want the Bills look amazing. Although, you know, that that could see that going either way because Indy has a tough. I mean, I can make a case for any team here. I'm going to actually take Seattle, the Seahawks, even though I'm a little a little wary of this pick because uh, I I just think what what's going on with the Rams and the quarterback. I just don't think they're going to have enough to get over uh, 
Russell Wilson, and even though their defense is playing amazing, I, I could see it being close. I'm probably going to sweat it out. That pick is dedicated to our former producer, Grace Lynch, who's a huge Seattle fan and who got after both me and Neil for not picking the Seahawks during yeah, the regular this is just season for Grace. pool. This is just for Grace. Um, okay, Jeff. Who, er, sorry, Jeff, you've got the Seahawks. Neil, who do you have? All right. You guys have left me with uh, some interesting choices, but I'm going to talk. Uh, I'm going to take a team we talked about earlier. I'm going to take the Pittsburgh football Steelers uh, in this one. Wow. We'll see if that haunts me. I was thinking about taking the New Orleans football Saints because I think they're actually probably the biggest favorites uh, of yeah. the round, but I want to save the Saints for later. But who knows? Let's remember the 7 and 9 talking about the Seahawks, the 7 and 9 Seahawks making the playoffs a number of 10 years ago, whenever that was, and everyone thought they were the worst team to ever make the playoffs because they didn't know about the 2020 NFC East, <laughs> uh, they couldn't see the future. <laughs> and what did they do? That they, they beat the Saints at home. Granted, they had a pretty big home field advantage because they had a full crowd and a loud one at that. That's the beast. Think Washington's going to get the same uh, level of home field <laughs> advantage here. Oh, exactly. We will see how this super wild card shakes out. But I think we can end this here for now. We'll be back in a moment for a rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. Yeah, so it's been kind of a weird season for Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors so far. We talked a little before the season about how different this team was going to be from the dynasty team that dominated the NBA over the previous half decade, and that showed Early on, as Curry shot 34%, the Warriors lost their first two games by an average margin of 33 points per game. People were sort of like, oh, I don't know about this team. But they have started to look more like themselves recently. They won four of their last five games, including a 31-point rout of Sacramento on Monday night. And to roll it back one earlier day on Sunday, Curry showed us a particularly bright flash of the greatness that made Golden State so unstoppable just a few years ago. Against the Portland Trailblazers for the second time in three days, Curry scored 31 points by halftime, and then he was like, why not do that again? He scored 31 in the second half as well to finish with a career-high 62 points. It was the first time that a player scored over 30 in both halves of a game since Pistol Pete Maravich did it in 1977. And it was, again, a new career high for Curry. His previous career high was 54 points in a loss to the New York Knicks all the way back in 2013. I guess it's not too surprising since a lot of the time since then saw Curry surrounded by so much scoring talent that it was kind of unnecessary to have one guy shoot enough to even put up such a massive scoring game. And since 2013, only one other Warrior cracked 60 in a game. Klay Thompson did it in December 2016 against the Indiana Pacers. Now, when our friend and copy editing colleague Santul Nurker came on the show a few months ago to talk about 50-point games, we focused on the most random guys to ever cross that threshold. And there were quite a few random guys to do that, seeing as how 119 different players had done it 345 times since the ABA merger in 1976. So you might think 50 points, 
60 points, well, what's the big deal? It's another 10 points. Well, you know, what what does it matter? But 60-point games are significantly rarer than 50-point games in the NBA. If we include Curry's game, it's only been done 36 times by 22 different players since the merger, and very few people on that list were not total superstars, if not Hall of Famers. Uh, The average player to score 50 in a game only scored 18.6 points per game in his career. About a fifth of those averaged fewer than 15 and a handful scored in the double digits for their career. So it's like you have some duds in there. Yes, you have like the Michael Jordans and the Kobe's and people like that, but you also have uh, Corey Brewer and some of the other guys, Tony Delk, the guys we talked about in that episode. Now, the average 60-point scorer, though, has a career average of 23.4 points per game, so more uh, about five more points per game than the 50-point scoring group, and the lowest career average for anybody that scored 60 in a game was Tom Chambers. He had 17.9 points per game. That's still pretty good. That's a, that's a good score. You don't have any of these random, you know, out-of-nowhere guys scoring 60 in a game. They might get 50. They're not going to at 60. Uh, And Curry added to the star power ever so slightly because his career average of 23.6 points per game is 0.2 higher than the average for all 60-point scorers since the merger. Uh, Curry also was 32 on Sunday when he did that, which is the second oldest for anybody at the time of a 60-point game since the merger. Kobe did it at age 37. Memorably, he got exactly 60 in the very last game of his NBA career. Uh, so he was older, but uh, Curry's pretty old as far as these 60-point um, scorers go. And because of that, we might have wondered, what took him so long? It seems like a guy like him is destined to join this club. Why did it why did it take this long? I mean, Devin Booker of the Phoenix Suns did it when he was 20. He scored 70 points in a game against the Celtics in 2017, and it was only 147 games into his career. But Curry, this was his 705th career regular season game in which he crossed 60. But if we want to make another comparison that I think is interesting, LeBron James somehow did not crack 60 in a game until 2014 which was game number 820 of his career. So it actually took LeBron longer in terms of games, if not age, to score 60 in a game than it took for Curry. Now, naturally, Curry scored points number 60, 61, and 62 of that game on Sunday with a three-pointer that he took with 42 seconds left in the game. It was his eighth made three of the game, which marked the 49th time that he made eight threes in a game during his career. Is that a lot? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, not only is that the most times hitting at least eight threes in a game by any player in NBA history, but it's also more than if you took the number two and number three players on the list, that's James Harden and Damian Lillard together because they only have 41 combined eight, three games. Uh, now eight threes get you to 24 points by itself. That's a pretty good game. If all he did was shoot threes. But Curry also needed to put in 20 points from twos and another 18 from the free throw line on Sunday to get to that 62 points. Anyway, it was really nice to see Curry erupt for not just a vintage game. I think you could make the case that this was one of the best, if not the best game of his career. And it happened right now in the 2021 season. Uh, Yes, the Warriors do have a lot of flaws outside of Curry that they need to work on before recapturing any of their former glory. But one thing they might not have to worry about is if Curry coming off this injury, this lost season, 
this sort of decline of the dynasty, whatever you want to call it, can be his old self again. He looked pretty unstoppable on Sunday, and he's playing better by the game, it seems like, uh, in the early going this season. Uh, that eight three-pointers that he's done that so often but not gotten to 60 points before <laughs> is really interesting because Harden has a bunch of 60-point games. Um, I, I'm, I, was, I was really surprised when I saw that how the game he was having – I didn't it took me a second to realize that he had never had a 60 point game before like I just kind of assumed that he had yeah I was a little surprised by that too and yeah like Clay Thompson is another guy where he has had 13 eight three pointer games which is not that much you know certainly not in the neighborhood of Curry but he has a 60 point he had a 60 pointer under his belt years before Curry did but Thompson is like one of these guys that famously can just erupt for God knows how many points in like a quarter or a half and you're suddenly just like oh my God what did he just do uh, whereas Curry has always been a little bit more of sort of a you know he he hasn't hit the highs as much as as maybe clay but he's very consistent in his yeah I'm gonna go out and and make eight threes I guess you know but again that only gets you to 24 you got to do some other stuff to 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 close the gap uh for the uh remaining points to get to 60. Thank you for doing the math for me there I was like yeah I was I was struggling with that one (laughs) I mean he could hit 15 threes that'll get him a little closer I mean yeah why not why not do that stuff come on just step back don't take those mid-range jumpers yeah Yeah, they don't they're not I think they're they're gonna see what they can do with just Curry being the seemingly one man army for much and hey, of it. Maybe, maybe that bodes well for seeing more sixty point games. Yeah, he doesn't have to share the yeah. ball anymore. Right. Just go yeah. out and shoot. I mean, it'll be entertaining at least, right? And I guess that's all that we can ask for as as fans of the NBA. Give us give us more sixty point games, Curry. We like that. All right, thank you, Neil, for that rabbit hole, and that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room and our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.